Um, yeah, good morning. I'm preaching this morning. It's good. It's exciting. Um, thank you. Thoughts on the font? Everyone always talks about the flipping font on the, uh, the slide. So, I like a serif, me. Anyway, we're preaching from the Bible. We're preaching, I'm preaching to you. From the Bible. Um, this is my first time doing this, if you, if you don't know that. But I'm surprised that we don't more often big up the Bible when we preach. I feel like sometimes we're like, oh yeah, this is from the Bible, it's kind of good. But it's really, really awesome. It's been an, a really cool exercise to, like, to prepare for preaching. And um, yeah, I just had a sense that often on holiday, you know, when schools, schools are, kids are back, and we go on holiday, we kind of slow down what we're doing. And yeah, I just wanted to encourage me and all of us to just crack on with that over the holidays. Um, thank you. Thanks, guys. Cool. So, where are we? What are we talking about? Where are we? We are in the book of Mark. We're carrying on a series that we've been doing called The King and His Cross, although the slide just says King and His Cross. But there is a verse, And we're going through the book of Mark quite thoroughly. Um, Andy spoke last week about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, his triumphant entry. And this week we are in Mark 12, talking about a parable that Jesus um, spoke. We're only four chapters away from Jesus' death and resurrection. Sorry to spoil the ending, but it's not actually the ending, which is cool. And so Jesus, he's came into Jerusalem, that's what Andy was talking about, and then they left again because they didn't want to stay in Jerusalem. And now he's back in again with all his disciples, and Jesus is talking to all the, the, the big guys. Um, there's just been a bit where Jesus flipped the tables because people are selling pigeons in the temple. So all the people have, have said to Jesus, who are you? Who, whose authority are you doing all this stuff by? Are you just a crazy man or are you the son of God? Are you sent from heaven or are you sent from man? So this is Jesus kind of responding to that. Um, those guys already want to kill Jesus. They've already just said, let's kill him. And I don't think they said it like that, but they did. And Jesus' disciples are a bit slower to get the whole, you know, Jesus said it a couple of times already, I'm going to die, but they're a bit slower. But it's easy for us to say because we, we can read the whole book. Anyway, let's read. There's Bibles at the end if you need a Bible. And it will come up behind me as well. I should have put like a place marker in or something. This is terrible. So we're in Mark chapter 12, verses 1. Then we're going to go to 12. Is everyone with me? Cool. Let's read. He then began to speak to them. Them is the chief priests, the elders, who's talking to in, in, in the temple. He then began to speak to them in parables. Here he goes. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, 
whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they, still the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So, this is Jesus speaking in the temple courts of Jerusalem. He's speaking to those guys, and it's a parable. So he's not talking about something that he saw once or something that his friend's dog's other owner did. It's, a, it's supposed to be a story that represents something. Normally they're quite simple and nice and there's a really easy, really easy take home. This is, this is a slightly heavier one. There's a bit of killing that goes on. Um, but even though Jesus doesn't directly say, this character means you and this character means me, the people who are listening to it, the chief priests, they kind of get that. Um, is it right if I just pray? And then we'll crack on. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Your word is alive and it's relevant to us today. Um, use me, fill me, and use and fill each one of us as we learn more about you, as we encounter you this morning, God. Amen. Oh, bit of a wobbly bin. <laughs> yeah, it's a fake plant. Okay, so I have some friends. It's true, well done. And a while back, a group of us went to celebrate two of the group's um, birthdays in near uh, Balata. It's like some timeshares. Anyway, a bunch of us went. It was two of the people's birthdays. And we had a great weekend, good time. Um, but part of the weekend... We went to the pool, and uh, there was a group of us, one of whom was very competitive. So he said, uh, let's play a challenge, or or, I don't know how you say that. Anyway, so we play that classic game of who can hold their breath for the longest. We all all know that game? So you bend, or however you want to do it. Submerge your face so that you can't breathe, and then you see you can hold their breath for the longest. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Anyway, so we keep going. We're we're doing like a little tournament, you know, 1v1, and then there's like a knockout round, and then finally there's two left. The one competitive guy that I talked about, and another slightly, slightly sneakier person. So, it starts. Here's the final. The two of them go down, but something different happens this time. One of the heads comes straight back up. We're all looking around saying, what? What's going on? And really quickly, he, he shushes us all. Because we're all saying, what's going on? You're cheating, you're cheating. And he, sh- he shushed us all. And then he, he, he counts about a minute. And then pops his head back down under the water. The first competitive guy sticks his head up. And he's just shocked that this guy can hold his breath for a whole extra minute. It's absolutely crazy. And he's angry. And he demands a rematch. But we all say, no, it's fair and square. He beat you. He beat you. And that's totally fair. Well, the word patience literally means to remain under, and that is the link to that story. But 
in this passage that we've just been um, reading, uh, the parable describes an extremely patient vineyard owner. So the guy who owns a vineyard is just crazily patient. You'd expect him to send an army or even cut his own journey short. You know, he's gone off. You'd expect him just to cut it short and go back and get what belongs to him, right? And Jesus is describing there an aspect of God's character too. God is patient. Um, and it seems reckless that he just keeps sending servant after servant after servant. But it would have dawned on the, the chief priests, as Jesus quotes the Old Testament, you know, he's using words that they would have been familiar with, that actually that servant and after servant is totally representing God sending prophets in the Old Testament. And they would have been like, oh, wait, wait a second, that sounds very familiar. Maybe that's what we've been doing for the whole time. God's been sending us prophets to get what, you know, to send a message. And we've just been being mean to them, killing them, persecuting them. Um, I've lost where I am, but that's okay. Um, yeah, they would have been asking questions, saying, no, the owner deserves the collector's fruit, right? It's his vineyard. They're just, they're just keeping it while it's away. They can take a little bit for themselves, but, you know, most of it belongs to the vineyard owner. That's fine. Um, but there would have been just little ripples of realization around that actually it's the chief priest. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about God's people rejecting the prophets. Ah, but I think it's important to say here that, that the grace and mercy that's shown by the, the vineyard owner slash God isn't to be mistaken for weakness. So this guy is not like a really passive, well, maybe he is in this parable, but our God is not a passive, oh, do what you want, I don't really care. And we'll see later on in the story that justice is finished, you know, justice is served. And the truth accompanying that is that we have a just God who, who, who finishes. Um, but there is something for us in here as well. Um, as Jesus tells of God's patience towards his people, he's also calling us to be patient. You know, he's telling us a story here about a guy who isn't quick to attack the people who are wronging him, but, you know, he patiently sends servant and, and, and sacrifices to, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, Jesus says, freely you've received, freely you'll give. So if we're describing here a patient God, then that's on us to receive that patience from God and then, and then give out. Um, so this is maybe like a twofold call to be patient with, with others when they let us down. So that might be people that we see in church, our family, but also to be patient with ourselves um, when stuff feels like it's not making any progress, you know, the battles that we're up against, the something that we're wrestling with, it feels like it's taking ages, but we have a patient God and we're to be patient as well. Just real quick, put up your hand if you get mad when anything buffers for like a min minute of a second. Minute amount. Oh, you're all much more patient than me. We live in a culture right now where if something loads for even a fraction of a second, all of us are just like, oh, come on, I deserve this. This should be mine. But it just takes too long, and it's really annoying. So imagine the breath of fresh air, which you're clearly all already being, which is great, if we are to be patient. You know, if we to take that extra time with someone that we work with to teach them something, or we, we take longer to shout at our family when they wind us up. Um, and as this parable describes the character of God, I'm asking, do we fully understand that who God is, how patient he is? The more that we go after that and we experience the fullness of God, the more that we get his patience for us, and that's such a great place to start being patient to each other. Cool. You still with me? Good.
All right. So there's a point. I've covered my timer, so I can't see it. But that's fine. There's a point in this parable that the listener's jaw would drop. They'd be asking questions. Why is he sending his son? Because he sends his servants first, and then he sends his son. They'd be saying, why is he sending his son? That's so irresponsible. That's so stupid. This is his only son. You know, everything would have gone to this son. His wealth, his belongings, his status, like whether he's a citizen or not. And knowing what these tenants have done to the servants, right? They've, at the very least, beaten them up and been mean to them. And at the very most, they've killed a couple of them as well. And he's sending his son. Absolutely mad. And you might think that these vineyard tenants just thought, oh, it's some weird guy trying to invade the vineyard. But no. They know that this is the heir. They say to each other, don't they? This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Savage. They think that they can quickly just kill kill the heir and then it'll all be theirs. Easy as that, right? No. And not only do they kill the heir, they disrespect his body. You know, to, to, to take a body and to throw him out at the time would have been really, really rude. There was certain things that you should do with a body and to bury it on the land was the right thing to do. But they just knocked it out like some weird Netflix like crime drama thing. Horrible. But this is a picture of what's about to happen to Jesus, right? Jesus didn't have a nice, calm death. You know, he was disrespected by the people that went to kill him. He was called names and laughter, and it was savage. So you'd, you'd probably expect that same ripple of understanding and the chief priests around listening saying, oh, wait, here he is. He's, you know, he's already said he's the son of God, and he's said that he's going to die, and we're trying to kill him. Maybe, maybe this is speaking to us. Ah. But what does that mean for us? So, so Jesus is the heir. These chief priests would have been realizing, oh, maybe he is the heir. He is the son of God. What does that mean for us? Well, we are co-heirs with Christ, which is an awesome truth. So if this is representing Jesus being sent as God's heir, and he's recognized as the heir of the Most High, then we are children of God too. So we, him, everything he owns belongs to us too. And so do we live in the fullness of that? Do we get everything that you know we have because we are co-heirs with Christ? Because of what Christ has done for us, we are children of God too. Do we know that we share in his glory as well as his sufferings? Cool. Still with me? I'm going to get a drink, but oh, magically filled in. Put it back on the floor. Yeah, good. Right, when I turned 17, I could not wait to drive. I was so excited. You know, I did, I did all the things that a keen teenager does. I applied for my provisional license six months before my 17-year-old but 17, but 17th birthday, which was when you're allowed to. And I took the theory test as well, you know, when you have to do the hazard perception, click, 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 and it was very hard. Anyway, passed it, all set to go. On my 17th birthday, I have a driving lesson. So he picks me up from the house, a guy called Oliver, lovely guy. And I was quite good, quite good at driving. You know, first lesson, only stalled a couple of times. He explained to me the mechanism of how an engine works, and oh, that really just connected with my brain. I got what the clutch was doing, got my gears, easy, fine. So I book it, book my test, six weeks from my 17th birthday, right? I'm like, come on, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pass my driving test before my last summer of secondary school. 
So in England, we do secondary school and then sixth form. So you move to a different school. But oh, this was Freedom Coming. This was McFlurries at all hours of the day, anytime. 3 a.m. McFlurries. Yeah, I could just go and just do it. And it was going to be the best. But the week before my driving test, oh, flashbacks. I'm cycling my bike to uh, down to the station. I used to get the train to school. And uh, I don't have any brakes on my bike, which is silly. Very silly. Always have brakes on your bike. And I'm going down a hill, and I'm controlling it at the start. And I'm like, yeah, I've got this, I've got this. But I'm wearing deck shoes. You know, uh, what they called loafers. <laughs> but the thing is, I'm wearing no socks, you see. And it's quite a warm day. So all of a sudden, I've got control of my bike. You know, I'm slowing it down with the pedals and the wheel. And my foot just slips out my shoe. So my shoe's still strapped to my bike pedal. And my foot's like out the side doing nothing. Oh, it's horrible. My whole life flashed before my eyes. And I'm weaving around, around the, the traffic light. And then I go around, down another little hill, a bit of patch of grass. And I'm trying to steer it away from this wall. Didn't steer it away from the wall. And I hit the wall. Luckily, it was a low wall. So only my hands hit the wall. And then I went over the top of the wall. It was horrible. And there was a lot of blood. I'd whack, I'd whack my knuckles into the wall. It was horrible. But it meant I got a day off school. So my parents were away doing something. I love you parents, but you were away. And so my friend's, my friend's mom picked me up. And she took me to the hospital. I went to A&E. And I think I'd wrapped, I'd like cut my shorts. Anyway, there was a strip of something that I wrapped on my finger. And it was so, uh, was totally gross. Anyway. They, they look at it in A&E, and they say, oh, it's not good news. You, you've, you've severed the tendon in your middle finger. So the little, anyway, science. My tendon wasn't connected anymore. So they say, oh, no, this is really bad. You could see it not being connected. It was very gross. Too, I, nearly, I thought about putting a photo up on the slides. Very glad I didn't. So, and they say, you need surgery. I'm like, what do you mean I need surgery? It's just my finger. I just chop it off or something, but... I don't, why do I need surgery? So they're putting me in that the, the gown, you know, for surgery with an open back, and they're and they're scrubbing me down, and they're, they do that big sharpie arrow to see which arm in case they cut open the wrong finger, you know, classic. And I'm just asking every single health professional that I can that I can get my hold on. I'm asking nurses, cleaners, porters, anyone. Do you think I'll be able to sit my driving test next week? Do you think I'll be able, be able to sit my driving test next week? And they were just laughing at me, looking at my not nice finger, and just said, no way you're sitting your driving test next week. Oh, and I was gutted. Even going into surgery, I was absolutely gutted. Anyway, surgery went well. Thanks for asking. And, that, and I can move my fingers totally fine. But I had to be in a splint for six weeks. So my hand was just strapped straight like that for six weeks. And it was the worst thing ever. So I went back to my driving instructor and I said, my hand is solidly straight all the time. Do you think I can sit in my driving test? And he said, no way. My left hand as well. So, you know, you need that for the gears and the indicators. And it just wasn't going to happen. And I was gutted. I did not wait very well for six weeks. But six weeks passed, and my hand healed. And I did physio so that I could make a fist again and, and, and be strong. And I booked my test again for September. So many months later, very sad. I hadn't beaten any records. You know, I was just with everyone else. A couple months after 17, 
and I pass my test. Brilliant. First time. Well done, me. And I can look back on that summer now, and I know that had I not broken my hand and sat my test six weeks after my 17th birthday, there's no way I would have passed my test, right? I was the kind of driver that, you know, leans their chair really far back. You can just reach the wheel, and your clutch is slipping because your feet are too far away. And I was, I thought I was the best, but I really wasn't. I was terrible. I know that I would not have passed my driving test. So there was destruction. I smashed my hand, and out of that came redemption, kind of. I passed my driving test. And the dramatic ending to this parable could be seen as negative, right? The, the tenants haven't done a very good job, and he only comes in and kills them. And everyone's a bit like, ooh, this is a bit hard to read. But, but first, let's remember what the tenants have done for this vineyard owner. They killed several of his servants. They killed his only son. So it was maybe, maybe people would have been like, oh, yeah, fair enough. You know, fair reaction. They even recognize that this guy's the heir and they, and they kill him too. But this is a direct comparison, like I said earlier, to how people have responded to Jesus' deity, right? People have recognized that Jesus is the heir. They're starting to. The disciples are probably slower than everyone else. But they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. Where Jesus quotes, um, when, when it's in inverted commas, like it was earlier, he's quoting Psalm 118 that they would have known from their, like, learning things as, as Jews, you know, educated Jews of the time. They would have got, oh yeah, that's from Psalm 118, quoting a prophecy about um, the Son of God being the Messiah coming and then and then being restored as the cornerstone, you know, the, like the solid bit. And that the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is here revealing who he is and, and, and what he's come for. And he's using terms which the, the builder people knew at the time, right? He's, he's a solid God. He's a cornerstone God. And he's also a present God. He's, he's meeting them where they're at and talking to them about building. Awesome. If we are to build our church, build the church and our lives on this foundation, can we see aspects that aren't fully on that cornerstone? Are there parts of our lives that aren't fully rooted in him? I'll tell you a story. My dad, he's a very calm man, very, you know, slow to anger, all the good things. Lovely guy. But there's one thing that triggers him like nothing else. There's probably a few things. But this one thing that triggers an extreme response to him, and that's things that are on the edge of a surface. If anything's close to the edge, he absolutely loses it. Which is maybe why, because maybe why I spilled my glass. Whether it's phones on a table, whether it's glasses on the edge of a table, a vase on the edge of a table, or people on the edge of things, you know, if you go to a mountain and sit near the edge, he stresses out like nothing. And we all know this as a family, so obviously we don't do it to, uh, you know, wind him up, but we, we definitely do. Um, but in kind of the same way, if, if bits of our lives aren't fully rooted on God, they're going to fall off and spill, like my water did earlier. Um, we, want, we want our lives to be fully on Jesus. Jesus comes and says, he's the cornerstone, build your life on me, build your church on me. And we want to do that. No overhanging bits. So my dad's right. Well done. So I'm, I'm going to finish up here. Just last little bit. Um, the killing of the tenants by the owner, which is a bit eek, is not the end of the parable. So we can uh, breathe a sigh of relief. The owner gives the vineyards to others without 
you know, we could stress and try and analyze, oh, who are the people that, that the owner's killing? We won't stress about that. Leave that to someone else. But we can just rest in the truth that, that we've been given the vineyard, right? Jesus has said, I've come. You can have life. It's with you. So we've been given the vineyard, and awesome. We're actually part of the vineyard churches. So we are the vineyard, and we're about extending God's kingdom um, everywhere in every way. And we've been given that by God. So we want to produce fruit, right? We see these tenants not doing it well. They produced some fruit, but they were super selfish with it and kept it to themselves. But Jesus has come and God's given a vineyard to new people, and that's us. So this parable is totally like for us to encourage us to, to produce fruit for God's kingdom. Um, yeah, because we have a God who brings redemption from destruction. There was destruction, um, but he redeemed it. And it's his sacrifice that sets us free. And that freedom's where we're, we're meant to be. Um, so although we could take this as a, as a negative end, actually, it's beautiful, right? The vineyard gets passed on um, to us, and that's awesome. I have no idea how long but I'm done. Cool. Should we, should we pray? And then we can 